Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. We have a heavy subject today as we discuss gun control in the wake of the deadly school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the recent shooting in Buffalo, New York, two weeks ago. Now, Richard, when mass shootings like this uh, happen in the United States, they're more common here than in, I think, any other country. When these awful events happen, the cycle tends to be shock and outrage, a fight over possible gun control laws, and then it seems like inevitably inaction, not much changes. Is it ever going to be possible for us to stop mass shootings in America, or does widespread gun ownership mean that there's nothing we can do? Well, I don't know how fatalistic to be on this topic, but I'm certainly not on the optimistic side. I have yet to see any set of proposals that have been made for controlling this issue, which is strong enough to command even a substantial minority of the overall population. Let me sort of go back and start about the theoretical framework, because it will give you an hint as to why it is that this thing is so difficult to track. On the first point is when you're dealing with crimes, there are two ways to deal with them. One is you deal with them after they've occurred, and the other is you deal with them before they occurred. If you're dealing with the thing after it's occurred, all elements of uncertainty about what would have happened are gone, and you only have evidentiary disputes of one kind or another. And then when you find somebody, what you can do is you could punish them in a particular case, and there's really no great risk of overbreath with respect to what you've done, no illegitimate curtailment of natural or individual liberties. It turns out that the ex post remedy is in many cases peculiarly inept when you start to deal with guns and with murders. Uh, The statistic that you have to take into account is the very large number of deaths that are followed by suicide, or sometimes even on these rampages called suicide by cop. People who are sufficiently distended and distorted do these things in the hope that they'll be shot, but they want to take somebody down with them. Well, if you know that people want to get killed, uh, then the death penalty is not going to be much of a deterrent for the way in which they behave. A death on the site is much sure, much cleaner, and much steward than anything that you could do through the legal system. So even if you decided to have capital punishment as a routine situation for mass killing, it would barely make a dent in the situation. Now, why is this true? Because what happens is when we start to make our general reg- generalizations about human behavior, we come up with the very simple proposition that the more severe the punishment, the less likely the commission of a crime. And this, of course, is probably a very accurate description of how things work for most of us. Um, uh, We stay away from things when they start to become more dangerous. But there are two features about this that have to be mentioned. One is with respect to the criminal law, for 99 point something or other percent of the population, the nature of the sanctions don't mean anything anyhow. These are people who just will not kill under any circumstances because of moral codes in a or whatever else it turns out to be. And then there are the other people. And those are the tiny 0.001% of the population, maybe in any given time in the United States, 100 people. And they simply don't respond to normal incentives because there's something whacked up inside their brains or their psyches or their pants so that the usual rules don't deal with them. That's why they're willing to court suicide. Uh, So what you really have to do is to figure out how are you going to start to deal with this extreme tale when we know so little about their behavior and their so motivations, except the one thing that we do know is that they're crazy in some deep sense of the word, so that the conventional wisdom of criminology, whether it be on deterrence or or retribution, doesn't matter. 
So then you put back into the ex-ante state. And at this point, of course, there is this huge problem. Uh, there are two forms of uncertainty. One is that what you do is you start to arrest people or restrict their movement uh, when it turns out they're innocent. And the other is that you let people go free when it turns out that they're going to be guilty. And if you start looking at the nature of the population at large, it turns out that in general, uh, uh, pre uh, pre-commitment uh, strategies, putting them in jail under red flag rules or something of the sort, is for most of the population completely crazy because 99 plus percentage of the population never has any indication to do this at all. So now what you're doing is you're looking through a needle for a haystack to try to figure out whom it is that you could put these things on. And, well, what are you going to start to do? Well, you can start to say that family and friends could start to say that somebody's behaved in an irregular fashion and something ought to happen. Well, what ought to happen? Well, one of the things is you could take them in for a psychiatric examination, but then they will pass the examination even if they are crazy and they'll go out. Or it could be they were a marginal case to begin with and then become a more serious case later on. Uh, so you can do that. It's not going to be strong enough. So then you say, well, we'll really do something strong. We'll just lock them up until we're convinced that they're not going to do anything harmful. At this particular point, the number of false positives, that is putting people into jail when they don't, will become enormous. And there'll be due process concerns, privacy concerns, invasions of liberty concern. Um, and you have to figure out just how heavy those are when you don't even know what the frequency and the severity of the errors turn out to be. So I think things of that particular sort will turn out to be extremely controversial which means that you won't be able to get any kind of majority of the population behind them. We know that civil commitment for insane people, even with permanent well-diagnosed insanities, has gone down precipitously since what the rates were about 50 or 60 years ago. And it's going to be very hard to get something of a lesser nature in the same pattern going forward today. They're just going to be these persistent kinds of objections. So I think the one thing that you can try to do is to say, look, what we're not going to do is to try to go back in the system. We're going to make sure that there are no places which are safe havens for people who are killers. And that means do you really want to keep school guards, um, off-duty officers armed with fire weapons and put them into public schools? That might well make a difference, and I would think it probably would in some cases, but you know what the objections are going to be to that. It turns out that the guard will be crazy, or somebody will steal his weapon, or it will go off by accident, and so forth. So you have this constant stress one way or another, and so what happens is you look at the overall situation. The good news is that overall crime rates, at least until the last several years, had gone down pretty continuously. The bad news is that nobody's come up with an effective strategy for trying to deal um, with these mass killings, uh, which simply take the guts and the heart out of the country. That makes people so sick that they really cannot figure out how they could look at the sky, even though it is blue. That's how horrible this stuff turns out to be. You mentioned uh, red flag laws. I, I want to return to this idea. It appears to be a somewhat new solution being being suggested. I think at this point, 19 states, one red and, and 18 blue have red flag laws. These um, these are, 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 well, I guess the idea is if a person exhibits uh, you know, the possibility of behavior of a mass shooting or something along those lines, a family member, school official, police officer can go to a court and have the court basically take that person's weapons and prohibit them from buying any more. I'd like to know 
on their on their efficacy, what do you think the, the likelihood that this could help? And then what do you think about the uh, um, the argument that they would violate due process or that there are some sort of pre-crime statutes that that you know aren't aren't in line with the American form of law? I mean, it, look, it's a, just a tragic difficulty. The first question is anybody can make a charge. That includes jilted lovers, disgruntled family members, frustrated creditors, resentful debtors. Well, I think uh, that, 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 I mean, any red flag, I mean, the people who've talked about this have said the standing has got to be figured out and it would probably have to be very tight in order to. Yeah, hold. well, it'd be very tight. And the moment it becomes very tight, it becomes very ineffective because what's going to happen is you're going to have to virtually prove that the guy is on the precipice an imminent danger to harm and so forth. And if you start looking at the cases, you may get a few people like that, uh, but you get them in and it turns out there's conflicting evidence. And then somebody comes in and says, oh, it's a hearing. Uh, Johnny really didn't do that. And besides what happens, we had a long talk. And for the last three weeks, Johnny has been really quite wonderful about this subject. Why would you want to arrest my son? He has to play in the varsity tennis tournament next month after all. So, I mean, you have the real problem of trying to figure out how good this particular testimony is. And then if what you do is you sort of really tamp down and require very exhaustive proof, um, it could well be, for example, that it's going to take more time to do this than it otherwise would be. And then here's another delicious thought. I use the word with sardonic anger. Um, uh, somebody now knows that they are the subject to one of these things. And what they do is they decide, oh, they were thinking about doing this, but they now better do it very quickly because otherwise they're going to be deprived of their arms. And then let's suppose that you do this. They're not talking about civil commitment, putting them in jail until they manage to sort things out. They're saying you can't get arms. Well, I mean, okay, uh, that doesn't mean you can't steal them. It doesn't mean that you don't already have them in some secreted place that you could start to use them. And it doesn't mean that you don't have some equally perverted friend who's prepared to give them to you. Uh, so by the time that you're done with this thing, the sanction uh, it prevents you from getting guns lawfully. Uh, but I would say that the vast number of criminals have the opportunity to get these guns illegally, even if it turned out they got them legally. So I guess this kid in Texas who on his 18th birthday goes out and he buys these guns. There's no previous record with respect to anything that has started to happen. Um, uh, what are you supposed to do in a case like that? It's not going to work. And even in those cases, we, we've had a notorious failure. Think back to 9-11, Tom. Right. And we had these pilots coming in and they decided they wanted to learn how to take off and fly a plane, but they didn't want to learn how to land the plane. If you recall, right? Yes. And nobody did anything in order to sort of say, well, maybe these guys are hijackers or there's something wrong. It's the same problem that you have in this particular case. Uh, these systems are completely poor. So I have tended to favor the least popular solution, which is the Israeli solution, which is that every off-duty policeman, every off-duty military service and so forth, always carries a firearm with them as part of their general duties. Well, this means that you're not giving it to rank amateurs, but you're giving it to people who know something. And there is no such thing as a gun-free zone, uh, because what happens is why schools become targets is they say, well, we have to keep every 13-year-old from having a gun. That's fine by me. But if you make sure that there are no guns around, uh, then what happens if somebody breaks in from the outside, there's no armed resistance to what will take place. How many killings can take place within 15 seconds? Well, how many times can you pull a trigger in 15 seconds? So we know that the standard procedure is when the police are available is the moment you know that there's something you don't wait to think about anything.
anything. You just bust in there immediately and start going after this character in the hope that he will turn and flee or turn to fire at you so that everybody else could get a chance to escape. Which means that having a police force two minutes away is utterly useless under these kinds of circumstances. They have to be there. And so I've attended to favor that as a particular solution. I have been met with stony hostility virtually every time that I have stated this. Uh, but it's the only way I think you can do it. The further back you go from the time of the actual incident to the time of government intervention, the greater the error rates. But if you actually have somebody there and this fellow was firing a gun, you're not worried very much about the overbreath. The only thing you're worried about is bringing this particular person down. So I tend to favor this as a solution in that particular fashion. Um, now, are you going to do it in every school? Who knows? But one of the things that you have to understand is that if you do it some places, it will be a deterrence for people going in, even in places that don't have that kind of protection, if people have no idea where that protection lies. So let me put it to you another way. If you start figuring out how you secure a building with cameras and so forth, what happens is you always use two kinds of devices. You have ones that are very visible, very public, so everybody knows there's somebody who's watching. And then they think, oh, they're watching me. What I'll do is I'll shoot those cameras out. But at the same time, you have secret cameras so that they can shoot them out at least in the same sort of way. And you use a kind of a double strategy, that which is public to deter and that which is private in order to capture and it's the same thing. You have a policeman at the front door. They now know that there's an armed force there. But if there are 10 people in the building who carries firearms who know what to do with it, they don't know who they are or where they are. And this might have a much stronger deterrent effect. Am I a criminologist? Well, no. Is anybody a criminologist who knows this stuff? Well, I mean, they, their data is very, very squishy. The only way you'll find out whether this works is to try it as some kind of an experiment. And then it's the fact that we have so much opposition to the use of guns, even by law enforcement type individuals, uh, that I don't think that this particular proposal has a chance to pass. Uh, so what's going to happen? The stories that we have, whether it be about Buffalo or this case, are not indictments of society. They're indictments of the 0.0001% of the members of society who are completely crazy and immoral and disgusting. Well, if you have a society of over 330 million people and you had 1.001% of people with this kind of behavior, you have several thousand, several hundred thousand people perhaps who have this kind of tendency uh, with respect to them. And it's just going to be extremely difficult to expect that not one of them will explode over the course of a particular period. And there's the first further element that there may be a kind of a copycat response. Somebody does this in a particularly horrible way in Buffalo, and then somebody thinks, well, I'll do the same thing in Texas. I just don't know what to say about it. I really despair about this old problem, but it goes back to the simple proposition that ex-ante remedies are extremely difficult for two reasons. One is you have to calculate the errors of over and under enforcement, and secondly, you have to figure out for all permutations how far back you go. Uh, do you do it only at the gun site? Do you do it at the manufacturing level or the retail level or some combination of the above? There's a general maxim in law that entitlements are relatively 
relatively easy to define, at least in the conventional cases. Don't trespass against other people. Certainly don't kill them. Keep your promises. But when things start to go wrong, the remedial system has to respond. And it turns out you get so many difficult choices that many times it's very difficult to come up with a consensus. So when I teach the law of contracts, you teach where you enjoin certain behavior, you require specific performance, you require specific performance on condition, you require specific performance and damages for past action. On and on it starts to go. And if you have really astute lawyers on commercial matters, you can reach some kind of consensus as to what the optimal strategy is. But when you start using the same kind of uncertainty in areas that are dealing with criminal behavior where the stakes are higher and you are not dealing with people in an established profession who have to be normal in order to trade in their usual way, uh, you come up with an absolutely ghastly type situation. So I I think it's terrible. Um, Make one comment. The president came out and says, we have to go after the gun manufacturers. Well, the gun manufacturers make guns that are used for self-defense. The number of cases in which they're used for self-defense is normally very high. The number of cases where the knowledge that somebody has a gun deters somebody else from using a weapon against them is probably very high. Well, there's no way to go after gun manufacturers because they supply weapons that are either stolen or taken onto a tiny fraction of mad people without taking it out of the hands of people who are entitled to use it for lawful defense. So going after them is exactly the wrong level. It's nice publicity, but it is not going to get this particular problem done. And it's certainly not going to get the problem done if you've got 400 million guns out there in a population where there are more guns than at this point there are people. So I think, in effect, given the current climate of opinion, uh, that it's very unlikely we'll get some kind of constructive action that will start to go through. Because it's not because it's just people are unwilling to do things uh, to stop crime. It's because there's a genuine dispute as to whether or not the means chosen are in fact correct with respect to the ends that you hope to achieve. Let's end on uh, possible legislation and Supreme Court reactions. Right now, we have President Biden, we have a Democratic House and Senate. Conceivably, they could pass some gun control law. Uh, Blue states, um, more likely than red states, to pass more restrictive gun control laws. I'd like to know, uh, looking at the court's makeup right now, how you think these measures would be interpreted by what ends up being a 6-3 court or a 5-4-ish court, depending on how Chief Justice Roberts is feeling. Um, the, the, the court in the last 10 years or so has changed quite a lot. So do you think that they're going to, they, they would be more likely to strike down restrictions? Do you think that they're um, changing anything? I, I don't know how the current court thinks about this issue. And and neither does the current thought. I mean, look, I want to go back to the beginning. In general, I'm a deep skeptic about most of the efforts at gun control for the reasons that I've stated. It's not that I'm opposed to the end. I think that the means simply will not work. Uh, But I also think that Heller was wrongly decided and that the Second Amendment has no role whatsoever to play with respect to the District of Columbia, and it has no role to play which allows the federal government to impose its will on the way in which the states operated. It was a federalism principle, which says, you know, the right to keep and bear arms, right, um, is necessary for the security of a free state, i.e. Alabama, not France, as Justice Scalia had mentioned. And that what it's saying is the states can then figure out how to organize their own militia. So you have to read the militia clause in pari material, part of a comprehensive system that includes the distribution of power over the militia, which is set out in Article 1, I think it's Section 18 of the Constitution, which calls for a very complicated system of divided control. And the whole point of this amendment was to make sure that the 
federal government could not interfere with the states in the circumstances where they controlled guns. The only thing that they could do was to make sure that for the red militia in question, they could standardize the weaponry so they were called up into national services. They could operate as a unitary force. Two other things. One is the states are not involved with the District of Columbia, uh, so it's simply not covered by what I would say the Second Amendment is. Uh, The clue to this is if you look at the way in which the Second Amendment is put up on the building of the National Rifle Association, only the second half is there. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But the first half isn't there. Uh, You're not doing constitutional interpretation if you read the first half as surplusage. And that is what Justice Scalia did. So I'm one of the people who believe that as an originalist matter, uh, the opinion was really quite weak. Uh, But now it's the law. And the question is, what does the law start to say? I think it's probably summarized in the following way. Uh, We clearly know that there is some police power justification for the ability to limit firearms in the state. So wholly apart from the Second Amendment, assuming it doesn't apply, as I think is generally the case, states can certainly take measures that are designed to protect the public health and safety from armed weapons. That's why we can make murder a crime. That's why we can certainly confiscate weapons from known criminals on a whole variety of situations. All right. Well, you can do that. What the law was prior to the situation in Heller was that there was an exceedingly low rational basis standard that was used with respect to limiting the use of guns. And that meant that virtually any kind of regulation went through, including the very serious powerful limitations on gun uses that are imposed by the Sullivan Law in New York and by various statutes in Illinois and other uh, crime capitals of the world. They're subject to very strict gun control rules, right? And now what's happened is that Justice Scalia said, we are saying that you can regulate, uh, but what you have to do is to raise the level of scrutiny, which means that it's probably intermediate scrutiny so that you have to prove that the harm in one direction, i.e. of letting the guns go out, is substantially greater than the harm in the other direction. Um, that is by having uh, keeping them unduly there. So the greater level of scrutiny means that more and more statutes are going to be declared unconstitutional. Uh, there are probably a list of 20 or 30 cases of all sorts of statutes that I haven't reviewed lately, indicating whether they are or they not on one particular side of the line. And what happens is state legislatures are very much in places like New York, the blue states, as you mentioned, quite willing to impose severe restrictions, and then it falls the unhappy duty to the courts to strike them down. This then gets you another problem. And not every one of these cases goes to the Supreme Court. Extraordinarily few of them do. And if you're in a blue circuit, the second circuit as opposed to a red circuit, the fifth circuit, one is New York, the other is Texas and so forth, you're going to see very different responses as to whether or not a statute is overbroad, under-inclusive or whatever. And so even before this thing gets to the Supreme Court, there are going to be lots of conflicts between the circuits and there are going to be lots of states that are going to try to get as close to the line as they can in terms of aggressive restrictions without tripping the wire of the Second Amendment. So this means, in effect, that the clear climate of opinion since 2008, when Heller has decided, is, in fact, to talk about Second Amendment rights as though they're very serious barriers against government behavior, which means that it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get these guns laws in place. Now, if you look at what I said, whether or not you can have a policeman or a military person who is not in uniform carry these weapons, there's no Second Amendment problem at all.
everybody would start to agree that those are perfectly legitimate type situations. It's only when you try to restrict the liberty of individuals to either acquire a gun or to stay out of jail that you're going to run into these heavy due process type situations. What makes these extremely difficult is you now have a real human being. He's been unlawfully detained. It turns out his family has been wrecked. His mortgage has not been paid. And this was a result of a vendetta. The cases that will come forward as challenges will be selected in such a fashion that the earliest cases will be the most compelling cases for saying that the law has been overbroad. And then when you try to write an opinion that strikes down an overbroad statute, you're going to always go too far in one direction or not far enough. Uh, so that with all these injunctions, trying to figure out what the appropriate scope is and the choice of remedy is very, very difficult. So I think, in effect, it's going to take an extremely long time to try to sort this out. And one of the things that we know about things that take an extremely long time is that oftentimes the first round of decisions make things even more difficult than they were before, and the second round compounds the first. There is a very powerful question of game theory, which ask the simple view. I make a mistake on the first move of the game. What am I supposed to do with the second move? Ignore it and try to do the right thing? Or do I simply go back and try to correct what's happened? Or do I take some intermediate step? Those are three possibilities for dealing with error. And you're going to have many more than one error. And you're going to have a very large and heterogeneous uh, judiciary. And you're certainly not going to have a majority of people on the courts who are classical liberals like I am. Uh, so that I think what you're going to see is a prolonged period of judicial agitation. I think you might even see some efforts at a constitutional amendment. I don't think they'll succeed. And by the way, it's what, late May at this particular point in time? I think the nature of this coalition is going to change very sharply by the time we get to next January, and the legislative prospects will be completely different under these kinds of circumstances. There may well be people who come forward and say, look, more guns, less crime. What we have to do is to strengthen self-defense in some other way. And there are other people going to say it's a total anathema. I have more sympathy for the first position than most people do, but I would never want to be regarded as somebody who's uncritical of the dangers of excessive use of power by police and everybody else. Now, that is one of the things that happens when you're classical liberals. You're always trading something off against something else. And one of the things that you're trading off is abuse by police as opposed to a situation where conscientious just please stop even more grave abuse by ordinary individuals and trying to figure out how you answer the old question. Who guards the guardians is something we've never been able to manage. And there was a famous expression back about 1926 ago of Justice Cardozo, who made the following observation, shall the criminal go free because the constable has blundered? Meaning it turns out when we try to do search and seizures, do we let the guilty out? because we have some procedural mistake. And the answer to that question has been yes and no. And that's what's going to be the answer to the questions that we have here. If you're taking not Richard Epstein, who has a reasonably coherent view for one person of what's going on, but try to aggregate the views of people who have fundamentally different views on the use of guns, the utility of various kinds of precautions, and everything else that goes into this unholy mist. So I think there's going to be an enormous amount of agony. In the end, if we had stronger social coherence in our various family-type institutions, it might do something to tame this a little bit. Uh, but I don't think, in effect, given the law of large numbers, that we will ever see peace and rest and comfort on an issue which is tearing this country apart. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. 
Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.